0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. Um, I got another quick read today. This one is... Uh, by Avikal Garg and or Avichal, I think is actually how you pronounce it and uh, he is a, he's the co-founder of Electric Capital and this is posted on their Medium blog um, and I, I stumbled upon this in a Twitter thread where he does a, apparently he gave a presentation recently on this and I'm not even actually sure where, I just saw in the comments, somebody said I love the live presentation of this so. I do not know how to get a hold of that. Um, uh, I might do some digging a little bit later to see if I can find it. But uh, he wrote this into an article on the medium on his medium blog at Electric Capital, and it's uh, it's titled "Reimagining Trusted Intermediaries." But it's a lot of thoughts that I've had for a very long time that I've never been able to really solidify, and I've never really done. Um, it's just kind of like a general. Feeling I've had about how trust is breaking down and there are cultural shifts happening, but I've never done any research on. And he just, this one just does an amazing job. Uh, the Twitter thread alone was, I was just engrossed in. I was like, oh man, these are amazing, um, because they they solidify and give data to show exactly what um what kind of a cultural and trust related shift that we've been going through and that it's a 50 year trend a 60 year trend this is not this is not something that happened last week this is something that's been happening for a very long time and uh bitcoin and this technology uh is specifically there to solve these problems um so uh before i don't want to he- lead off his argument too much because uh, we can talk about this afterward, but I just think he does a wonderful job of articulating this. Uh, so I was really excited to get on this, and he, he gave me the go-ahead almost immediately. I just sent him a message a day ago, and he said, yeah, that's great. I'm flattered, so um, I'm excited. Uh, thank you so much for the permission to read this on the show. And without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into to, uh, on the Medium uh, page, at Electric Capital, Reimagining Trusted Intermediaries. A form of disruptive innovation occurs when a cultural shift is combined with utilitarian technology that allows the culture shift to scale. Blockchain and cryptocurrencies have both of these properties. They are a cultural shift manifesting through useful technology. One, We are in the midst of a global collapse of trust in institutions. Two, technologies, blockchain, digitally scarce coins, distributed consensus, etc. that allow us to operate without these trusted intermediaries are now emerging and allow us to reimagine a world without these intermediaries. In the midst of cryptomania, we believe it important to focus on the utility behind the hype. Blockchain is software that allows us to reimagine trusted intermediaries. Cryptocurrencies are one of the first killer applications. Cryptocurrencies are reimagining the world's most successful means to transmit trust. Money. Behavior shift plus software equals step function change. When one people shift their behavior often in ways that seem silly at first in pursuit of utility and two technology enables these behaviors at scale, dramatically improved solutions can emerge. This combination is in pursuit of human needs and is ultimately a utilitarian behavior. For example, a decade before Uber, You could hail a random stranger on the streets of Moscow and negotiate a cash payment for them to drive you somewhere. Mobile phones and GPS enabled ride sharing at scale, but ride sharing also required people to shift their behavior and be comfortable getting in a stranger's car. People did this because it was ultimately a step function improvement over calling a taxi. As both software and culture came together, a $100 billion-plus industry emerged. These evolutions are not easy in the short term, as they may displace existing companies and may have unexpected second-order effects. In the long term, however, innovations drive dramatic improvements in efficiency, productivity, and quality of life. Mobile phones disrupted PCs, which disrupted mainframes, which disrupted the slide rule. We should embrace disruptive innovation for its long-term benefits while being mindful of its near-term consequences. Disruption is faster and larger scale than we expect. When disruptive innovation rooted in a behavior shift occurs, it happens dramatically and the markets it creates are much larger than anyone expects. At the time it was raising a Series A, many thought Uber would never be a billion-dollar business if the entire taxi industry was only worth $10 billion. In retrospect, we have come to understand that lowering the friction to participation to anyone who owns a mobile phone dramatically increases the total addressable market. Once we got over the psychological hang-ups, we realized that shopping online let us access long-tail items we never would have had access to otherwise, that watching strangers' videos unlocked creativity we never knew existed, and staying at a stranger's apartment may be a better experience than a hotel. Cryptocurrencies may be the next scaled innovation. Blockchain and cryptocurrencies may be the next scale disruption because they meet the critical criteria. One, there has been a dramatic collapse in our faith in the formally trusted institutions of society, which indicates a willingness to consider alternatives to these formally trusted institutions, a potential behavior shift. And two, new software enables trustless transactions trading off speed and throughput for security and censorship resistance. 1. Culture shift, a global collapse of trust. The following data from Pew, Gallup, and Edelman shows that many around the world have lost faith in the institutions that formed the foundation of modern society, the press, public schools, banks, etc., This is not a side effect of the internet in the 90s or social media in the 2000s. Trust has been eroding since the 1960s in all of these institutions. Begin graphics. So we start with a trust of uh, the percentage of people who trust the government in Washington, either always or most of the time, and it begins in the... Uh, late 50s, during Eisenhower's presidency, uh, and during Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, it's somewhere just under 80%, and then we get get this kind of volatile up-and-down movement all the way into today, where it has fallen to under 20%, and has been that roughly since 2010. Then we have Americans' trust in the mass media. We have a Gallup poll that starts with, um, again, it's not a linear decrease, obviously, but it starts around 50 to 55% and has fallen into the 30s, sitting at 32, with the most recent data being uh, 2016. Then the third chart is confidence in public schools, another Gallup poll that starts in uh, 1973, uh, right around 60%. And this declines throughout the entire period up to 2013, where the most recent data is at 29%, so less than half. And the last graph is Americans' confidence in banks, starting in 1979, right around 60%. And it declines to the most recent 2016 data on this chart down to 27% with a uh, dip as you might expect in the 2008, 2009 range that went as low as 21%. So we've barely come out of that, and I don't think our future is looking very bright for the financial system and trust in banks. End graphics. The collapse of trust is not an American phenomenon. It is a global shift and is particularly acute in Western democracies where a significant majority of people believe the system is failing so we have another graph here that um is polling data regarding fears of certain problems Uh, but the key thing that they are pointing out in this is obviously the percent of people who have said they agree that the system is failing and the highlighted ones uh, are france italy mexico south africa spain poland brazil colombia germany the uk Australia, Ireland, and the US. And that range in percentage of people who think it is failing is the lowest is 57% and the highest is 72%. So it's a very high percentage of people polled believe this system is failing. All right, let's jump back in. 2. Blockchain equals technology to operate without trust. Blockchain and related technologies are fundamentally about operating in an adversarial environment. Every aspect of constructing a permissionless blockchain system asks, what if we cannot trust an intermediary or counterparty? What happens if the participants in this ecosystem are malicious? How do we mitigate this? How do we design systems where an adversary cannot corrupt Integrity of the network. For example, Bitcoin's distributed and decentralized ledger eliminates single points of failure. Its proof of work forces miners to have something at stake and secures the network from attackers. A history of all transactions required to construct the ledger, i.e., the blockchain allows verifiability and enforces economically rational behavior between distrusting miners and waiting six blocks approximately one hour helps minimize the chances of a bitcoin being double spent. Even the code is distributed open source so that anyone can verify it. Money is the world's largest trust market. Money is the world's largest trust market. Money and financial instruments are how we package and transmit trust at scale. Current forms of money and financial products rely primarily on a trusted intermediary. However, after 2008, there was a dramatic collapse in trust in the institutions that make up the money stack from bottom to top. All right a quick chart. Um, one is money is the world's largest intermediary of trust and it's the market cap in the trillions of uh, uh, different um, trust markets. Uh, first is crypto at 0.3 trillion dollars. Then you see gold at 7.5 trillion, offshore banking at 20 trillion, uh, stocks at 41.5 trillion, and global M3 at 97.5 trillion dollars. And then the next table is um, one titled, Programmable Money is Eating the Financial Stack. And it just shows how uh, there are centralized and then token-enabled and decentralized versions of uh, brokerages, derivatives, securities platforms, banks, cash, central banks, and store of value. Uh, And it gives... uh, and then gives examples of each of these in each uh, category. So like a centralized brokerage is Schwab, whereas a uh, decentralized um, token alternative is Xerox. Then you've got like a bank, your example is Bank of America, and then the decentralized is a wallet or full node. Um, uh, Then store value, for centralized you have government, and for decentralized you have Bitcoin or Ethereum, so on and so forth. Uh, So um, if you wanna kinda go through that whole table, I definitely encourage you to go check out the article so you can kind of look at these graphics and get a visual idea of what he's explaining. But we'll close that out here and jump back into the article. Cryptocurrencies are the killer app of blockchain technology because they are a tool to align trust between mutually distrusting parties. Cryptocurrencies allow us to reimagine how to conduct business in every part of the financial stack, and thus what form an intermediary might take. Programmable money may not result in a fully decentralized system, but it certainly allows us to reimagine how we might construct each part of the financial stack using modern software tools. Decentralization comes at tremendous costs. Blockchain and cryptocurrency systems prioritize seizure resistance, security, and immutability ahead of scalability and throughput. These are the opposite of the trade-offs centralized companies have made for the last 100 years. The resulting decentralized system comes at tremendous cost, low transaction throughput, but in some use cases the resulting benefits Intermediary free transactions, censorship resistance, seizure resistance, permissionlessness, etc. are worth the costs. Whether or not Bitcoin ultimately succeeds, the cryptocurrency market is fundamentally about asking where and when the costs of decentralization are worth the benefits. When do the benefits of decentralization outweigh the costs? As silly as it may sound to invite a stranger to your home to give you a ride, the disruption occurs because the solution is rooted in utility. Disruption occurs because a solution is high return on investment. As a corollary, people are unlikely to change their behavior for incremental benefits or low ROI. In some cases, such as a non-sovereign monetary store of value, the benefits far outweigh the costs. The return on investment of a permissionless, seizure-resistant, non-sovereign store of value is tremendous, and it is fundamentally utilitarian. A cryptocurrency that is dramatically easier to transfer, subdivide, and transport is a tremendous asset for most individuals in the world. All right, we've got another... uh, uh, table here that is comparing the features of a store of value um, and then the different alternatives of it with um, even a given example in the table. Uh, so we've got like things, uh, the, the features themselves like difficult to seize, is it private, is it easy to transport, easy to acquire, easy to transfer, uncorrelated with some other asset uh, or has limited volatility. Um, and then they're comparing uh, with uh, given examples uh, crypto, gold, U.S. dollar, non-U.S. dollar currency, fine art, land in a country or land outside of a country. Uh, and uh, so I definitely encourage you to look at that just to kind of get an idea of the comparison. Obviously, I'm not going to go through the entire table, but let's go ahead and jump back in. Uh, it just shows that crypto is uh, far better in a, the bulk of these categories than pretty much any other option uh, available. Through this lens, we may also consider when and where a smart contracting platform has a high return on investment. It is unlikely that most developers or users want to switch away from Amazon Web Services for a marginal improvement. It is far more likely that there are novel uses for smart contracts wherein parties may not have a trusted intermediary and such transactions cannot happen today. For example, cross-border global trade, where the jurisdiction to resolve a dispute may be contentious or unknown, or contracts that may be executed reliably from beyond the grave, for example, wills and trusts, are far higher return on investment and thus far more likely starting points for smart contracts. Reimagining trust. Where are we now? Step function changes enabled by technology take root much more quickly than we might expect, and the rate of adoption is only accelerating. The iPhone is only 10 years old, but it is hard to imagine a world without smartphones. Begin graphics. Um, We've just got that uh, graphic that I'm sure we've seen numerous times of technology adoption by household. Um, This one is particularly in the United States. It shows a variety of now ubiquitous technologies and the length of time it took for them to be adopted, uh, going all the way back to 1903 where this data starts um, with uh, technologies like uh, the automobile landline uh, phones, uh, color TV, cell phones, video cassette recorders, the internet, uh, the refrigerator, and you clearly see there's an obvious trend that um, the The trend lines were far more gradual early on, and then as time goes on and in everything past 2000, the lines practically look vertical. The uh, acceleration of adoption uh, continues to get more and more um, exaggerated as we move further into the future. Cryptocurrencies are moving at an ever accelerating pace as well, in large part because the number of developers entering the space. But by all accounts, we are in the early days of blockchain and cryptocurrency adoption. Many projects are just launching and have not yet scaled. Using Chris McCann's approximation, baselined against early internet adoption, we are in the equivalent of 1994 or 1995 in crypto right now. What would you do if you could go back to 1995? If blockchain and cryptocurrency are indeed a global shift in how we think about trusted intermediaries, they may well be as transformative as the internet. If we are currently in 1995, the natural questions to ask are, if I could go back to 1995, what would I do? What might I do differently? Though blockchain and cryptocurrencies will evolve differently than the internet, we believe there are two takeaways that still apply. 1. Focus on crypto-native opportunities. The most interesting products will address the global collapse in trust. These crypto-native products will only be possible using new technology and will not compete with established products. They will likely unlock new markets and solve for use cases that incumbents cannot compete with directly, though they may try. These crypto-native solutions will look like toys, will be niche products targeted at the wealthy to start, or will first take root in underserved markets, for example, young people in developed countries or the middle class in developing countries, where people have no sunk cost in existing trusted intermediaries. However, as the internet has taught us, if 50 million people want something, odds are a billion people want it eventually. Two, be patient. We were trying to do video chatting, online to offline communities, and social networks from the early 90s. The infrastructure was too nascent and the demand was not yet present. Many crypto native opportunities will be the same way. Developers are reimagining trusted intermediaries. There has been a long, slow collapse in trust in the intermediaries that served as the pillars of post-World War II society. This has been a consistent trend across institutions since the 1960s, though it is only in the last decade that many have become acutely aware of this shift. Now that we have the technologies to perform the functions of some of these institutions, Thousands of developers are reimagining these institutions to be more transparent and accountable. How long will it take for this to play out is unclear. What forms these technologies will ultimately take is unclear. Where these products will first find traction is unclear. What is clear, however, is that when tens of thousands of engineers start to build, betting against them is a losing proposition. All right, and that will close our article by Avichal Garg. Um, he, uh, again, this was on Electric Capital. Uh, another huge thank you for uh, letting me read this one. Um, his tweet, his little tweet storm uh, that he did, uh has like 12 or 13 tweets. I can't remember exactly how much it was, but um, uh, did a wonderful job of summing this up um and uh, so if you did not see that I retweeted that but um this was just a great article I'm really happy to have stumbled upon it and now I'm definitely following Avichal uh to see what else that he has going on uh in the future and what kind of writing he has um it looks like uh I think I'm I think this is uh, Electric Capital's first post oh no it's second okay so So, uh, we've got Programmable Money, which was posted on June 14th, and then this one was posted just the other day on October 23rd. Um, So, definitely go out and go up and check them out and follow him, uh, because no doubt there's going to be some other great stuff coming from them in the future, Uh, and uh, obviously I will tag Avichal in this uh, and link to his Twitter page and the Electric Capital page. Um, But... There was just a lot of great stuff in this, um, kind of detailing out. That's one of those things. Like, there's clearly a huge cultural shift happening. the The modern world in the particularly in finance and media, clearly, clearly there is a huge division happening, um, and it only seems to be growing and accelerating. And people are seeking out alternatives at a crazy speed. Um, it kind of feels like we're on the edge of a really huge shift in these systems uh and i mean a lot of people are saying that oh my god we're on the edge of civil war and stuff i I don't really see that as an issue in fact um all the violence uh charts and everything even though even though it's so much more in our face um, i think that's part of the problem is that the media is giving these narratives of the world that don't seem to actually exist in the real world while Actual violence and actual school shootings and all these things, the data on this is actually falling pretty much across the board, but some of it is getting manipulated, and these gross like blanket statistics are being told to make it appear as if these things are getting worse. But as soon as you start breaking into the details, it it seems so clear that all these narratives are based on nothing, Um, and it really feels like this this, last—like this— This desperate grab to keep people watching who are obviously moving away, they're finding alternatives, they're looking to the internet for their news, and I mean so many of these major news um, institutions have just become... Twitter—they just read Twitter feeds for Christ's sake. I mean, I I ended up stumbling upon Fox News or CNN the other day. I don't remember what it was, but literally, someone was standing in front of a giant screen and they were scrolling through a bunch of different tweets and talking about what everybody was talking about on Twitter. And it's like, like, what are you here for? Like, I've got a Twitter feed, Um, and so um, there's so many things like that happening, and and because of that, it's becoming this crazy outrage culture where. They have to talk about the most triggering, like, in-your-face. They have to build everything up because they're. it feels like they're scared to death that people are just going to turn off their TV and go to these other platforms. And that trust, we're seeing similar breakdowns. The media is just the one that's obviously more in our face, but we see the exact same thing and the data backs it up. Um, so e- even though this does seem to be this overarching narrative and just this feeling that this shift is happening, uh, clearly the data shows the exact same thing. Uh, I mean, some of these some of these uh, uh, trust charts that he've, he's got up here show terrible, terrible declines. I mean, from 80% to less than 20% as far as the number of people who trust the government, Uh, Trust in the mass media has fallen from 55 to 32, um, and there's no way that's getting better. Uh, Confidence in public schools fell from about 60 to under 30 now. Uh, We got another uh, confidence in banks from 60 to 27 with a trough of 21 during the financial collapse. And like I said while I was going through that chart, the future there looks bleak. Um, all of our debt has gotten worse. Everything that caused the first collapse—the the fake interest rates um, manipulated lower to encourage everybody into debt, uh, the subprime mortgage crisis—we uh, just there was a CNBC article just the other day of 10,000 people lining up to sign up for subprime, um, you know, no fixed interest mortgages. Uh, the housing, existing housing sales uh, have dropped for like the last four quarters and it's starting to look really nasty. Um, so so as buyers start to back out of that market, obviously prices are going to get hit and that's going to steamroll again because we've built this whole thing right back up on a bunch of cheap money. We've just built it on debt going coming from nowhere. Like It's like everybody we... We only had, you know, a hundred thousand pieces of lumber in savings, and we decided to build a million houses with it. And now we're a third of the way through all of these houses, and we've run out of lumber. Like that's what's going on in the economy. But the the financial institutions and the governments are manipulating these prices to make it appear as if all this lumber is there. And then when the numbers go up and everybody's working, it's like, look at all these great numbers. It's all short-sighted thinking. And they genuinely seem to think that they can design the economy to manipulate people's behavior to, to engineer sustainability, which is not how prices work. Um, You can't get a group of bureaucrats in a room to decide what a market price is and have that turn out positively. Um, It's not how markets work. It never has been. Prices are natural things, and they include millions of transactions and valuations and pieces of information that nobody could ever know. It's more information that we could possibly assess as a group of this – arrogant idea that we can just get a group of smart people together and they'll solve all of our problems for us. And that level of trust is incredibly dangerous because it creates systemic risk where no one can escape it. There's no, there's no pressure valve to let off uh, the imbalance. And so the entire economy goes through this again and again. And we have this bull uh, bust cycle uh, where we're just inflating bubbles over and over and over again and we're gonna run it's gonna run out of gas um, I mean you look at the the debt levels uh, across the economy and it's staggering uh, We haven't none, none of the statistics none of the fundamentals of the economy are anything but multiples worse than they were in 2007 and 2008 and um, so we're going to see this again. There's no way we don't have another credit crisis. We have more debt than we did then that caused the first credit crisis. Uh, so the trust in that is going to go through another severe dip when all of those bills come due. Um, and, or, you know, it will just get paid off or uh, who knows what the government will do with whether they'll inflate the currency um, to the point that it just, the. Uh, everyone's savings, anybody who was responsible through all of this ends up paying the bill for everybody who was irresponsible and uh, drowned themselves in debt, uh, which which is a horrible incentive. That's what we have had going into the 2007-2008 crisis. You punished the responsible behaviors and you incentivized the irresponsible behaviors and bailed out the people who caused the crisis. Um, I mean, it's just it's just absurd. And the fact that they've regurgitated all of these policies just in literally we gambled and lost all of our money and then doubled down on the exact same bet um so there's no way that confidence in the banks that's sick that that 27 is going to look like a golden age of financial trust in probably five or six years um and who knows how much that could push the adoption of bitcoin and other uh, decentralized systems like this that allow us to mitigate trust. Um, and like he says in his, uh, his tweet, um, uh, that tweet thread, where is it? Oh, here, here we are. Uh, so, quote, But history has taught us, do not bet against entrepreneurs, developers, and builders. Given enough time, they will win. We went from Kitty Hawk to humans on the moon in 65 years. The iPhone is only 10 years old. WeChat is only seven years old. A decade is an eternity in tech, end quote. So it's, it's going to be, I mean, we have so many people working on this and uh, it's crazy. Andreas Antonopoulos talks about that a lot, that, that, you know, two to three year delay between the flood of developers and the amazing tools they end up building in spaces like this and with a new technology at their disposal. Um, and we have more minds thinking about the concept of money. The word fiat—it was a car. That was it. Ten years ago, you would never have heard that word. Anybody on the street would have had no clue. And now there is entire an entire culture around understanding some of the main principles of money. Regardless of how ignorant some people remain about it, it's part of the discussion now. We have thousands and thousands of developers now who are building cryptographic systems and working on cryptography and privacy where it was a handful of cypherpunks 15 years ago since then the development and the the conversation the interest everything around this completely niche technology that just seemed to be only for uh, people who wanted to encrypt their messages has just exploded its orders of magnitude bigger than it ever was before um, and people are talking about that. Um, there's a culture around whether or not your uh, your currency is actually decentralized or secure from uh, you know an adversarial situation. We have this argument about who's most decentralized, uh, and it's just it's just fascinating. I can't. This space always surprises me, and uh, there's just so much going on at all times. It never gets boring. And I mean, I read stuff every single day and I constantly still find stuff like this that just articulates the shift in such a such an amazing way uh, that gets me to just think about it a little bit differently and make me realize there's uh, – gets me a little bit more solid picture, pulls, pulls that focus in a little bit better so you've got a sharper image of what's going on and what is actually happening. And I love – I love that he mentioned – multiple times in the article that there is a key trade-off that the main utility of these systems is to mitigate trust is to create an environment where adversaries can be protected against where you can mitigate the damage of a malicious actor and it is a deliberate trade-off between throughput and speed Uh, and and that trade-off is so crucial Because if you forget that that's the utility and you prioritize the exact wrong thing, if you start thinking that, oh, we need to be competing with Visa, you're you're sacrificing the main utility, the dominant differentiator between this technology and the old incumbents and financial system. You're sacrificing the one thing that you have over them in order to get back just something as, as basic as, you know, make sure we have enough transactions. And I think that's a foolish, foolish prioritization that will just kill the technology. That's what gets me about Bitcoin Cash all the time, is they, they have completely wrong priorita- priorities. And I, I, think that's a, I think that's an excellent way to express it. That The utility of these technologies is the disintermediation of trust and the inefficiency, the, um, the lack of throughput and speed is absolutely deliberate. Um, and another, another good one to listen to uh, actually is by uh, Car Campit. The at Car Campit is his name or his Twitter tag. Uh, one we did uh, recently. I don't remember what episode it was, but it's called uh, 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 Bitcoin Blockade Runner of the Information Age. Um, excellent little piece um, I really really enjoyed reading that one and it's got a great analogy to why Bitcoin needs to uh remained, remain resource um, its resource costs need to remain low uh, so that it can squeeze through all of the different um, channels and operate it's not dependent on any single network or any single um, Uh, Jurisdiction we can always achieve consensus regardless of who and how well-funded an attacker is Um, And the the blockade runner analogy, I think does a really good job And he's got a really fun little story about it. So I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that one Uh, Actually, uh, let me find out what number that is real quick And just so I can I can link to it for you guys if you're interested Come on search, here we go, Bitcoin blockade runner. Okay, uh, it's crypto quick read 160, so it's episode 160. Blockade runner of the information age. So definitely check that one out, that one was really fun and uh, I, had a, I had a lot of fun reading that one. All right, uh, we will close this one here. I've ranted for quite a while. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Another huge thank you to Electric Capital and uh, Avichal uh, Garg for letting me read this. Um, don't forget to check him out. Follow him. Follow Electric Capital on Medium so that you can stay up to date and catch the more, uh, catch the additional work that I know these guys are going to do. Uh, sounds like they're going to have some uh, more exciting stuff. So I will be sticking with it. And don't forget to stick with me. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Um, uh, follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy. Medium at The Crypto Economy and uh, Mastodon as well. You can find me on the bitcoinhackers.org instance. And if you are enjoying the show and uh, want to support my work to try to keep this thing coming, um, it takes an unbelievable amount of work. Uh, So if anybody can donate, um, that's a huge, huge help. Thank you to everyone who has in the past. Uh, It really does mean a lot to know that you guys are getting value out of it. Uh, You can also share it, retweet it, um, you know share it with everybody in the crypto space so that they too can get all the best articles and discussion and around any topic all the topics of uh, Bitcoin and this technology that make it powerful because uh, I want to cover this for as long as possible throughout this uh, huge shift what we're happening and all the all the major major events taking place because um, I love it this it consumes all of my time and energy and it just never gets boring so any uh any i always have my donation address available but also i have an amazon affiliate link and a trezor affiliate link um and trezor is actually right now up until um january 1st is doing a higher commission uh, so if you have not gotten your trezor uh, i definitely recommend the trezor hardware wallet that's why i have the affiliate link i have a keep key i have a ledger nano s and i have a trezor trezor is still my favorite i do use the others um uh, Ledger is probably my second most used, uh, but I, I love playing around with them, but the Trezor is just awesome. And so that's the one I'm affiliate for. And if you have not gotten it, uh, get it through my affiliate link. You can find it on the crypto economy.podbean.com. Uh, you can find it on crypto and, uh, you can find it in any of the show notes of the episodes and my Amazon affiliates right now I'm reading or I'm listening to, uh, one by uh, Hugo Noyan actually recommended this. Um, it's by Leonardo. Leonardo, I can't remember the name. It's called The Drunkard's Walk: How Randomness Rules Our Lives, and it is a fascinating book. Um, uh, I've been, I went through like three books there back to back that I wasn't super happy with, um, and I actually stopped two of them halfway through or third of the way through. I was getting bored with them, but this one is a really, really good one. And it talks about the history of randomness and the study and thought around it, um, around probability and how we end up creating these narratives uh, that don't actually fit many things And, and the explanation of how things happen and unfold can often be attributed to just randomness far more often than a specific narrative or a uh, specific uh, cause and effect relationship, which is just fascinating. It's such a cool book, so I definitely recommend it. I have an affiliate link. I just posted it on Twitter not too long ago, so check that out if you want to get that book. Um, I am listening to the uh, audio audio version. So that's another great way to support the show if you would like. You can get The Drunkard's Walk or, of course, Mastering Bitcoin, which I've been reading for quite a while. I hit about a page or two, maybe three pages every night. Um, another another awesome one. You need it for a reference if you want to know and understand how Bitcoin works. Uh, it's incredibly dense, so it takes a very long time to get through. That's why I only do a couple of pages, but highly highly recommended. And by doing by buying it through my affiliate link, you would be supporting both Andreas Antonopoulos and my show, the Crypto Economy Podcast. Okay, that is enough shilling of affiliate links here uh thank you guys so much check out cryptoeconomy.life to see all of the other episodes that i have up if you want to explore some of the um, ones in the past and uh yeah uh, don't forget to follow me check everything out thank you guys i will catch you all back here tomorrow on the crypto economy podcast take it easy guys